you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, thank you AJ and Emily for leading us uh, so well this morning. Luke chapter 1 verses 26 through 38 is where we will be in our uh, journey through Luke. I love Christmas music. I'm not one of those guys necessarily that listens to Christmas music out of season, although we have already sung a Christmas quote-unquote Christmas song. We're not delusional. We did that on purpose, by the way. But I love Christmas music at the appropriate time. Now, there's a particular song, Christmas song, that we hear year after year, a song that gets stuck in our heads that will not leave. It's a song here that everyone knows and a song that after I mention it, everyone's going to leave here singing it today and it'll probably be in your head the rest of the day. And I apologize for that sort of. It's going to be a mine, so if it's going to affect me, it needs to affect you too, right? That song is Mary Did You Know. Mary Did You Know. Now, if that is one of your favorite songs, I'm not trying to ruin it for you. I can assure you uh, of that. I'll sing it every time I hear it, okay? You can ask my, my family, too. At random times throughout the year in the house. I don't know why. It'll just come out. You know, it just comes out. But this, this song was really the premise, I guess, of Mary Did You Know is to raise a set of questions concerning the deity and the power of this child to whom she would give birth. And the answer to the question, Mary, did you know, is a resounding yes. Mary did know. She absolutely knew. Well, how did she know? Well, she knew because Gabriel, a messenger of Yahweh, the God uh, Most High, delivered this message to her in a pronouncement that she would give birth to the one who would occupy the throne of David forever and to the one of whose reign would be unending. Mary did, Mary did know that her child would do all of these things and much, much more. You see, the story we're considering today is more than likely one that we are all well acquainted with, one of which we may only hear, though, during the Christmas season. And so be advised, over the next week or two, we might sing some Christmas songs because they relate directly to this text. And this passage, though, this passage is significantly important for us because it serves to deepen our knowledge and our understanding of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done for us, and therefore what it means to follow Him and to trust Him. Yet the danger, the danger for us in a passage like this is familiarity. You see, what once provoked us to awe and what once provoked us to wonder can lose its majesty and its power the more familiar it becomes to us. Therefore, the danger for us with passages like Jesus' birth announcement that the angel Gabriel gives to this young girl, Mary, the danger is familiarity that can cause us to lose sight of its power and can cause us to lose sight of its importance. Let's be honest, we don't read this passage with great wonder and awe as we once did. 
But church, today I pray that we see the power and magnificence of what is taking place here in the life of Mary and in the overall scope of redemptive history. Here, Mary is called to participate in the unfolding of salvation history by being the mother of Jesus, the Son of God. And her example to us even here today, is one of obedient trust as she's been chosen to be a part of the miraculous as God accomplishes His plan of redeeming and ruling a people perfectly through Christ, the Son of the Most High. Sitting on the throne of David, reigning over the house of Jacob forever, whose kingdom there will be no end, a kingdom of which we are all invited into. And so today, as we look to this passage in the Gospel of Luke, I pray that God would restore our wonder and our awe of what He has done. Almighty God, Creator of all things, the One in whom breathed life into us, took on flesh to establish a kingdom in which there will be no end for His people to rule and reign with Him through Christ. And may we learn to obediently trust in God because of His grace shown to us through Jesus. So if you're able, I ask that you would stand in honor of the reading of God's Word as we read Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Pray with me. God, you are gracious to have given us this opportunity to gather to study Your Word, to hear of how You have worked in history to redeem Your people, to establish Your kingdom and invite us in. And God, You've given us an example in Mary of what it means to obediently trust in You. So God, I pray this morning that we would see Your glory through how you have worked in redemptive history to redeem us. And God, I pray that we would see how you have called this young girl 
to follow you in the midst of some very difficult circumstances, but to obediently trust in your word as it is rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Of whose kingdom there will be no end. Bless the preaching of your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So as this passage opens up, it comes directly on the heels of another miraculous birth announcement given by Gabriel to Zechariah concerning the birth of John the Baptist, which is what we considered last week. Now these two mothers, Mary and Elizabeth, and their two sons, John the Baptist and Jesus, belong to one story. The story of the redemption and the story of the restoration of Israel, the people of God. Now remember, Israel is estranged from God. They are under alien rule, the Roman authorities, and they have been oppressed. And God's covenant with His people has not yet been fully realized, although Israel continues to stand in anticipation for its redemption through a Messiah. And as we considered last week, God had not yet spoken to nor sent a prophet to Israel for 400 years until Gabriel appears to Zechariah in the temple. And these people prayed and longed and waited for 400 years, making sacrifices and trusting that God would make good on His promises. Hence, God now is intervening in human history to bring forth an everlasting kingdom. And in doing so, what he does is he solicits and embraces the partnership of Zechariah and of Elizabeth, but not only Zechariah and Elizabeth, but of Mary, all of which are Israelites and representative in their own ways of the people of Israel. And as we will see, Luke is interested in his royal ancestry and drawing close attention to how God is fulfilling the promises made to David in sending an eternal ruler and king and Messiah. But before we go any further, I want to make one comment, one observation about Mary. Let's be honest, as Protestants, we don't quite know what to do with Mary, do we? I've said it many times, but we are often a people of extremes. We swing from one side of the pendulum to the other, or we swing to the other side of the pendulum to stay as far away from this side of the pendulum as we, want, as we can lest we be grouped into one category of people. Now, the Roman Catholic Church, and some of you may have grown up Roman Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church venerates Mary. They claim that that she was free from original sin and also serves as an intercessor between us and God. This is why they pray to Mary. This is why they have shrines designated specifically to Mary. But what I will humbly present to you this morning is This is not what Scripture teaches. You see, Scripture reveals that Mary is a recipient of God's grace just as He pours it out on all of us as well. Yet, whereas the Roman Catholic Church elevates Mary to the place of seemingly deity, in order to avoid that at all costs, we face the danger of ignoring Mary which is not helpful either, and not what we see in Scripture, not what we see in Luke's Gospel 
here this morning. We see that Mary plays a central role, not only in the birth of Christ, but in what Luke is showing us in this gospel. Remember, Luke is a skilled writer. Luke has done careful work in his investigation uh, of Jesus. And if we rewind to last week, we see that Gabriel appeared to a priest, Zechariah, a priest who would be this pillar of God. And what do we see? We see that Zechariah doesn't believe Gabriel, but his unbelief. Now, Gabriel appears to Mary, and what do we see? She believes. And so what Luke is holding up for us to see is that Mary is a model of obedient trust in the Lord. Not someone to be forgotten, not someone to be venerated, but someone who is a model of obedient trust in the Lord. In fact, she is the first one we see in the Gospel of Luke, obediently trusting in the Lord. And so with this being said, I want to make three observations from this text this morning. First, God accomplishes His plans through unlikely individuals. God accomplishes His plans through unlikely individuals. The text opens up in the sixth month. Gabriel shows up to Mary in Nazareth. Now, the sixth month gives us indication that it is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And so what this means is that Elizabeth had just now come out of hiding. Remember from last week's text that for the first five months after she miraculously conceives John the Baptist, after being beyond childbearing years and then being barren for her whole life, she goes into hiding and now has come out of hiding. And so whereas Gabriel first came to Zechariah in the temple, the center of the Jewish world, the holy place, Gabriel now goes to the most unlikely of places to visit the most unlikely individual, Mary. You see, Nazareth is a small outskirt town consisting of about 400 to 500 people. A town of which had a bad reputation. If you remember in John 1.46, we see this question in reference to Jesus. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Olo? You ever heard that before? Nazareth isn't even mentioned a single time in the Old Testament. Not a single time. But there, in this nowhere town, is a young teenage girl named Mary. Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Joseph was of the house of David, which has tremendous significance, as we will see in just a moment. Betrothal, if you're not familiar with betrothal, it isn't necessarily something we are familiar with in modern times, at least betrothal to the extent it was observed in the time of Mary. But betrothal was a stronger form of engagement. That means that a man and a woman were legally bound together, legally committed together. They just hadn't consummated the marriage or had the marriage ceremony yet. And engagement in this day, betrothal, was very similar to marriage. It was a bond. It was a binding agreement between a husband and a wife. And in order to break betrothal, one must legally divorce a person. They must legally obtain a divorce. And this type of engagement involved much higher stakes than our modern engagement does. And so Gabriel comes to Mary with words of grace we see in verse 28. He came to her, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. You see, God is smiling on this young, unknown girl. We might be tempted to think, when we think about Zechariah, and we think about what God did with Zechariah, we might be tempted to think, well, of course God chose Zechariah because he's a priest. 
Of course, God chose Zechariah because he was righteous. He was blameless. All of these things that Luke tells us. But, but the angel's greeting to Mary reveals that she was chosen solely as a matter of God's grace. How could she, an unknown young woman, be described by God as the favored one? Do you ever feel like your life is too small for God to notice? Too significant, too insignificant for God to be aware of you? Perhaps this is how Mary felt in Nazareth, where nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Gabriel says that Mary was favored, which means she was bestowed with unconditional grace as all of us are as recipients of salvation. She does not deserve this honor. It's all of grace. Surely there are other virgins in Nazareth. Could God not have prepared them? But you see, grace eliminates all boasting. God has sovereignly chosen her, has so sovereignly chosen to use her to help carry out His redemptive purposes. The issue was not her merit, it was not her worthiness, but it was God's sovereign grace like all of His ways as they are ultimately beyond human understanding. Mary receives this visit from Gabriel and she is troubled by this visit and what Gabriel has to say. Here you are, Mary, a seemingly insignificant person in an insignificant town, and here this divine messenger shows up and says, you are favored, and the Lord is with you. Yahweh, the God of Israel. God has given His favored one who had no claim to worthy status. He's raised her up from a position of lowliness and has chosen her to have a central role in redemptive history. You see, he didn't check her bank account. He didn't see what kind of house she lived in, how many Instagram followers she had, or whether she had name brand clothes or anything else in between. He chose her to bear his son out of his grace. You see, God doesn't choose those to accomplish his purposes based upon their externals, but solely based upon his good pleasure and grace. But let's notice that this whole passage is marked by the fulfillment of prophecy. You see, Mary's status as virgin reminds us of the prophetic word in Isaiah 7.14, which says, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she shall call His name Emmanuel. This correspondence between Gabriel and Mary cannot help but draw our minds to Isaiah 7, 10 through 17, and how God is fulfilling His covenant promise to Israel. God is again intervening in history to bring His purpose of complete redemption to fruition through the Virgin Mary. And how is He doing it? Through an unlikely individual in an unlikely place. As of 2021, the world's population was 7.888 billion people. We're adding to that population around here, praise God, as we see babies born. That's a lot of people. That's a whole lot of people. A very large population. Yet here we are in Olo. Olo, Mississippi. 7.88 billion people, and here we are in Olo. Or let's extend this into the greater area, Hattiesburg, Mississippi. 
When you think about 7.8 billion people, it would be very easy for all of us to feel insignificant, lacking any qualities that might elevate us to some sort of position of importance or influence that would ensure a wider reach as it pertains to being used by God. But church, we can be encouraged because God uses the most unlikely people in the most unlikely places to accomplish His purposes. And He wants to do that with you. The cashier, the waiter, the construction worker, the truck driver, the electrician, the school teacher, the retired, the stay-at-home mom, the high school student, the middle school student, all unlikely individuals, yet recipients of God's grace like Mary, all of whom God wants to obediently trust Him and be open to being used by Him. It's all of us. But what is it that informs our faith and obedience? You see, what God tells, what Gabriel tells Mary about the baby she will have informs her understanding of the faith and the hope that she would model for us. Faith or trust in God is anchored in the bedrock of the truth of Jesus who has come and who is building His kingdom to which there is no end. Second observation. God fulfills His promises in Jesus. Look at verse 31. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call His name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to Him the throne of His father David, and He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of His kingdom there will be no end. So as we look at this text... The logic of the angel's presentation is very telling. Mary will conceive. She will bear and name the child. God will give him the throne of David. And as a consequence, the promised son will reign forever. In other words, the partnership of human divine is essential if Jesus is to accomplish his mission. Which is absolutely amazing, by the way. It's amazing. But look at what this passage says about Jesus. First, Mary is to name her son Jesus. In Hebrew, the name Jesus is the same as Joshua. And in Hebrew, Joshua means Yahweh saves. Don't be afraid, Mary, Gabriel tells Mary. Do not be afraid. Your child will be the Savior. <laughs> According to Matthew one twenty one, your child, Mary, will save people from their sins. Second, your son is also the son of the Most High. That is, he is he will be born to you, and in His flesh be your Son, but He is the eternal Son of God, Son of the Most High. Gabriel told Zechariah that John the Baptist would be great, but guess what, Mary? Your Son will be greater. Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. And as the Son of God, Jesus has the right and the power to do whatever He wishes. Jesus is uniquely God's Son, the divine Word and the image of God begotten from all eternity. Third, Mary's son will fulfill God's promise to David spelled out in 2 Samuel 7. In 2 Samuel 7, God promised David that his throne would be established forever. And unless David is going to live forever, something must happen. Or something must be happening here that requires our understanding. Because what do we know? And Scripture tells us this, David did what? He died. 
These verses unmistakably point back to Old Testament expectations of the renewal of the Davidic dynasty. The Davidic descent in, in 2 Samuel 7-8, the promise of greatness in 7-9, the throne of David in 7-13, divine sonship of the Davidic king in 7-14, and perpet- the perpetual nature of his kingdom in 7-16. As we know, God rescued and set apart a people. The people of Israel and began to build His kingdom. And this kingdom would need to be represented by a king who could rule over the people in justice and righteousness and truth, working to serve for their protection, for their security, for their gladness, for their joy, their prosperity, and for their well-being. And King David was set apart for this task. And the people of Israel had, had David who they revered and who they esteemed and who they held in high regard. But David was only a man. One day David was going to die. But beyond that, beyond that, David was also sinful. He did not always lead well nor live his life well. And so what God was holding out in His divine providence and perfect plan of redemption. He was holding out here. What He was holding out is that Jesus would be the one to come after His father David and to His kingdom there would be no end. This is where the foundational hope in Jesus and the kingdom He is building is awe-inspiring for us. Think about the kingdom Christ is building and what it means to be a part of Christ's kingdom. This is a kingdom where a good and perfect king rules over his people. A kingdom where there is joy in being perfectly secure within the king's grasp. In this kingdom, one lives in peace knowing that no matter what life may throw at them, nothing can rip them away from this king. In this kingdom, one lives under perfect provision knowing that this king watches over and knows every need that his people have. They live in the promise of being able to flourish as his people know that he is working all things together for their ultimate and great good. Are you in despair over the future of this country? Are you filled with fear about what a possible Democrat or Republican-led government may look like? I want to hold out to you this morning the hope of another kingdom. The offer of citizenship in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. You see, the church itself is an outpost or an embassy of the kingdom of God as we Christians are citizens of that kingdom. An entrance into this kingdom is forsaking your allegiance to the kings or gods of this world and repenting of those and placing one trust in King Jesus and coming to Him for the joy and the peace that is unshakable and that is only found in Him. This is the offer available to us and all who would look to Jesus. Citizenship in His kingdom. His eternal divine kingdom. Warmth inside from the harsh, cold realities of this anxiety-riddled life. It's available through the baby that Mary bore. This Jesus is the one who holds our Bibles together, guys. This reference from Jesus to David echoes back to the Old Testament promises made about Him of His kingdom there will be no end. 
Jesus connects the dots of our Bibles. He gives life to it and He gives life to our souls. And all of this is set before us so that we might hear the message of this coming King and have bedrock hope in Him. And like Mary, know who the one to come would be. Mary was going to give birth to her Messiah, her Savior, the one to whom she would worship and adore. This will be David's son who rules Israel forever in an everlasting kingdom that is ours through repentance and faith in this great king. This demonstrates the everlasting dominion of Yahweh. And Mary sets the example for us that we might see her example of obediently trusting in God. You see, the message is that a king is coming and he calls us to come to him and to live. And the model, the example for us, the first disciple that Luke holds out to us in his gospel is none other than the mother of this king. The teenage betrothed virgin Mary. Third observation. Like Mary, God wants us to obediently trust him. Look at verses 34 through 38. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing is impossible with God. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Remember that Luke carefully retraced Jesus' steps. Interviews eyewitnesses and scours the accounts of those around him. So when he lays out these two birth prophecies about John and Jesus, he begins to develop this picture of how one enters the kingdom of God. The coming kingdom was pronounced by John. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. However, the message is not entrance into the kingdom based upon what we can do to atone for our own sins, but in the King who comes. And to the one who does not say, I hope you can pick yourself up and come to me, but the one who says, I will come to you. And I will offer myself as an atonement for your sins. And I will be your King. And in verse 34, Mary asks an understandable question, very similar, if you look at it, to the one that Zechariah asks in last week's passage. How will this be since I am a virgin? Mary's response is not as Zechariah's, which was born out of unbelief. Zechariah's, as we considered, was born out of unbelief. Mary responds very similarly but obviously not one born out of unbelief, but born for a question of explanation. How will this be? I am a virgin. I don't even have a husband. How is this going to happen? And then Gabriel answers her question. Now hear this. He answers it in a complex way that has garnered multiple interpretations and ideas and thoughts throughout the years. You see, some things in the Bible are easy to understand, right? They're like walking through the shallow end of a swimming pool. But not everything in the Bible is found in the shallow end of the swimming pool. There are some doctrines that seem as if we have been dropped out in the middle of the ocean. And the incarnation of Jesus, the Son of God, is one of those doctrines. 
How can God, eternal Son of God, God Himself, the second person of the Trinity, be born? That's a great question, Mary. That's a great question. Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, as A.J. mentioned earlier, this language brings us back to Genesis 1-2, where the Holy Spirit was hovering over the face of the deep in creation. It also is what Jesus quoted in Hebrews 10-5 when He speaks of this body that was being prepared for Him. By the power of the Holy Spirit, And by the power of God the Father, a body was prepared for God the Son who would be brought forth in Mary. (laughs) Guys, that's radical, all right? By the way, I may preach a little longer today because I don't think anybody's leaving. Now, let's be clear about some things as we think about the incarnation. Being overshadowed means that God created in Mary a baby. By the power of the Holy Spirit, God worked miraculously in her, and the eternal Son of God was united with a human nature in Mary's womb. This does not insinuate some sort of physical relations between God and Mary or anything else that might be born of that mentality, that idea, which is what some would hold to in some Religious circles. We must be clear though. The Holy Spirit did not create Jesus the Son of God. Alright? Jesus is eternal. As the eternal Son. Eternally begotten of the Father. If you've been here on Wednesday nights for our adult Bible study, we've exhausted the topic of the Trinity, by the way. So this language is something you're very familiar with if you've been there. Jesus is eternal as the second person of the triune God. But what we see here is that Jesus, the Son of God, assumed flesh in the womb of Mary. Philippians 2 gives us some insight on this, 5-11. He took on flesh. Therefore, when He assumed flesh, He assumed flesh as God, because He is God. This means that He was born with a different nature than us. Alright? He's not Joseph's son biologically. Whereas we are born with a sinful nature, as God, Jesus was born with a sinless nature. Whereas we are born sons of Adam, carrying with us the nature of Adam, Jesus was born the Son of God, carrying with Him the nature of God through the conception of the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb. What does it mean to be born with a sinful nature? It means being born with the nature of one who acts in rebellion against the Creator. It means that no one has to teach you and no one has to teach me how to sin. If you don't believe that, walk back here to the nursery and you will see very well that no one has to be taught how to sin. It's inherent within us, given to us, handed down to us from our father Adam. We are all born sinners of the line of Adam through which sin entered the world. But Jesus is the second Adam. 
He is the one who did not have a sin nature. He was never chastised for disobeying his parents or anything else in between because he is the perfect Son of God. We know Jesus never had to learn not to sin. He never had to be corrected. Now, he is 100% human in the human experience. We know this from uh, the book of Hebrews. But he is 100% detached from us in the sinful human experience. He's not sinful. And this mystery, listen, this mystery is profound. It is profound. How God could take on flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb, be born, and for all of His days live in sinless perfection, all the while being met day after day with the temptations of this world. And whereas our sinful, sinfulness manifests itself in a variety of ways, proving our need for restoration between us and God, Jesus is sinless. And He is the means by which we can be reconciled to God. The Lord has revealed the second Adam, the one who accomplished what the first could not. He is Jesus, the Son of God, born to Mary. And to this young girl in a nowhere rural community, Gabriel then offers proof of the legitimacy of his message. Mary's relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son, and Mary's response is invaluable. You see, in verse 37 is a reference to Genesis 18, 14. Nothing is impossible with God. This announcement from Gabriel takes this young teenage girl's mind to Sarah, who miraculously conceived Isaac, reminding her and us that God is in the business of working the impossible for the redemption of His people. It is as if God is concerned with making sure that His servants know He can do the miraculous, so much so that He Himself can take on flesh, rule, and reign perfectly over His people Israel. And what is Mary's response to this miraculous announcement? Your will be done. Your will be done. Church, this is a response of faith. I hope that all of us as Christians have the desire to grow in our faith. And if we want to grow in our faith, Mary sets a good example for us to follow. Maybe you say this morning, God, I could use a reminder that you are in the business of holding the faith of your children and keeping it from floundering or giving way to disbelief or despair. Or maybe you want to grow in your faith. Well, to grow in the Christian faith is to obediently trust in the Lord. It is an obedient trust grounded in the truth about Jesus, the Jesus that we follow. An obedient trust that isn't just a tip of the cap in Jesus' direction, but a life change, a turn from a previous direction of life towards a life that is walked in obedience to Him. But in order to comprehend the enormity of Mary's response and what our response, your will be done, might entail if we genuinely respond to the Lord in that way when He calls us to obediently trust in Him. We need to remember back to verse 27. Mary is a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph. We need to remember This, when we consider what obedient trust means for the Virgin Mary, this didn't come without a